Well, that is the name of the series, uh, Race and Rewind. And each week I've said that it's a series about something kind of simple, but kind of profound at the same time. It's this capacity that God has given to human beings and human beings only that you and I can change our minds at any point in our life. doesn't matter how old we are. Uh-oh, I'm tied to the chair. <laughs> I wonder, uh-oh. So where was I at? What in the world was I talking about? This capacity that God's given us, um, it's really kind of profound. We, we change our minds about things every day so we don't think as much about it. But again, let me reiterate what I said. It doesn't matter who we are as we gather here today. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter how long we have been in a certain lifestyle or rut in life. Uh, God has given us the capacity to change our minds and by that process to change our very life. Now, each week I've pointed to a word in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. The New Testament was written in Greek. And 58 times we have this one word, metanoia, and it's usually translated repent or repentance. And what it really means is to change one's mind based on new insight. Now, churches have kind of tacked a lot of uh, thought to these words, you know, and it's usually something about mourning for your sins or maybe doing penance or something for your sins. But you have to understand when Jesus first used that word, when the apostles used that word, it didn't mean anything like that. It simply meant to change your mind based on new insight. Now, uh, inherent in the idea of changing your mind based on new insight is that you're changing direction in your life. It's usually used, for example, when one first becomes a Christian. One has been following themselves, doing things their way by their ideas, and they come to take their trust and take it out of themselves and put their trust supremely in Christ, their creator, and then they start to follow him because they trust him. And so it's this idea of changing our minds. Sometimes it's called conversion. Sometimes it's called being born again. There's lots of different terms used for it. Anyway, today we're going to talk about could my attitude use in a race and a rewind now attitude is one of the things we all kind of recognize you know what it is and some of us would probably think that it's important and some of us would probably think it's kind of unimportant but let me just share something with you that I found fascinating um, I'm gonna have to put my specs on <laughs> it says more and more researchers are finding that gratitude which is one attitude there's multiple attitudes I'll name some in a minute that gratitude doesn't just make you feel like a better person, it's actually good for your health. Uh, professor and researcher Robert Emmons put it this way. He said, clinical trials indicate that the practice of gratitude can have a dramatic and a lasting effect in a person's life. It can lower blood pressure, improve immune function, and facilitate more efficient sleep. One recent study from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine found that people who were more grateful actually had better heart health, especially they had less inflammation, healthier heart rhythms. They showed a better well-being and a less depressed mood, less fatigue, and they slept better. Gratitude is the opposite in effect that stress has. Stress hormones like cortisol are 23% lower in grateful people and having a daily gratitude practice could actually reduce the effects of aging to the brain so here we have this uh, little reminder 
that God has created us both uh, spirit, soul, and body, and they all interact on one another. And an attitude of gratitude, you know, just taking the time to look at the things that are um, around us and be thankful, consciously thankful for them, this affects our body in profound ways. And so this is just one little example about how attitude affects people. There was another study done, and they found that uh, people with what's called a positive attitude, that they tend to be 88% more successful in life, and that uh, compared to attitude to education, only 12% of education influence one's success ratio, attitude 88%. So, and again, I don't know what they're calling success, but I think we all kind of get the idea. So there's, there's lots of different uh, multiple different kinds of attitudes that we can have. I, I just jotted down a few just to, you know, kind of help us get our minds going with this thing. But there are some people that, as we said, they have, you know, positive or optimistic attitudes. Some people have negative attitudes. They tend to be pessimistic. Some people are confident. Uh, some people have an inferiority attitude or an insecure attitude. Some people are... Um, suspicious in their attitude. Other people are more confident. Some people are arrogant. Some people are flexible and tolerant. Some are gentle. Some are harsh. Um, some are bitter. Some are skeptical, sarcastic, and downright cynical. So there's all these different kinds of attitudes that, that we can carry with us. And maybe, as I ran through that list really quickly, you heard one that reminds you of someone, and more than likely, you did. So could my attitude use an erase and rewind? You see, that's where the whole thing gets a little hard. It's like, what about me and my attitude? First of all, let, let's look at what do I mean by attitude? I think we all probably kind of have an idea, but let's get real specific and clear. An attitude is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something. This was the best way I could word it. It's a settled way. It's kind of a bent in our way of thinking. It's a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something. Attitudes are very much about beliefs. Now, they may not be accurate beliefs, but we, we hold to them. About beliefs we hold and expectations we form from those beliefs. For example, we may believe that the world is a hostile place and that we always have to be defensive and protect ourselves because we expect to be hurt all the time. And so you see how, how that will create an attitude. You'll have a very defensive, cynical, maybe, maybe hostile attitude. Let's go on. Attitudes color our present perspective on everyone and everything in life. In other words, attitude is kind of like the rose-colored glasses that you and I view life through. The life that we see through our attitude, this is really important, it's the life that we actually have. What I'm trying to say is that whatever attitude dominates you or I, that's going to determine the quality of life we have, not to mention the way we influence or impact others that get near us. And so it's a very powerful thing, attitude. Attitudes deeply impact the quality of our life. And by quality, I'm, I'm just kind of loosely using the, the happiness ratio, the contentment, the satisfaction, the fulfillment, whatever term you want to use. Attitude will deeply impact that. Not circumstances so much, but attitude. And then finally, this. This is interesting, and some of us need to really just take this one part in. Attitudes are often an attempt to protect ourselves 
and survive at the highest level possible. In other words, I might develop a certain attitude because I'm just trying to stay safe and I'm trying to survive at the highest level that I possibly can. It's based on my, my view, my expectations, and so I'm just trying to stay safe. Now, most of us in here inherited our first attitude or set of attitudes. It's usually dependent upon uh, the family we grew up in, the people that we were around, and some of us... Um, some of us inherited some attitudes, to just to put it plain and simple, that were not very helpful for us. Um, we're all familiar with some homes where the family members, the, the leaders in the family, have low sense of self-esteem. They have a strong inferiority complex. They're, they're insecure. And people like that, families like that, tend to be very hypercritical about everyone and everything. And it is highly likely that some of you grew up in a home where mom and dad and granddad, when everybody and family got together, they found the chink in everyone's armor. They found the flaw in everyone. They found the weakness in everyone, and they exploited it. And you inherited maybe for a while that same critical kind of attitude. So some of us inherited some attitudes, not our fault. We didn't even know how it happened, when it happened. But now we're of age where a loving God is coming to us even this morning and saying, Let's, let's look at what attitude is dominating you, and, and is it the right one? Is it a healthy one? Now, what we're going to do is uh, look at a portion of Scripture that actually gives us a model. It says this is the kind of attitude that healthy human beings should have. This is the model. This is the ideal attitude. And we find this in the New Testament book called Philippians. And so if you don't mind turning to that book, it's... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, it'll be page, in this Bible's near you, it'll be page 1,324, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read a few verses there. And this is kind of giving to us a, a model attitude to compare uh, all other attitudes toward. Now, I'm going to start actually in chapter 2, and I'll just give you a little background. This is written by the Apostle Paul. He was the uh, one the Holy Spirit used to write 13 books in the New Testament. He had planted this church in the Greek city of Philippi, and now years later, he's writing back to them, and that's how we get this book in the Bible called the book of Philippians. And let's, let's actually start in verse 3, and you'll see that uh, the Apostle Paul is giving some instruction to the congregation. Verse 3, it says, Instead of being motivated by, what is the term? Selfish ambition. So, you know, this is what we tend to be motivated by. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be, excuse me, each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interest of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had. So now we're getting into the real description of the model attitude. So what was this attitude that Jesus had? Verse 6. Who though he existed in the form of, what does it say? All through the New Testament, Jesus is clearly, redundantly declared to be God. When we read in the book of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. The New Testament says it was Jesus that created everything that there is. Now, 
For some of you thinking, but wait, 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 there's the Father. What about the Father? Well, there's actually the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a term that, that's been coined by theologians called the Trinity or the triune God. It's one God eternally existent in three distinct persons. In other words, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not either of the two. They are distinct, they are co-equal, they are co-eternal, but they insist on being identified as one because they are in complete alignment, complete harmony. They, are, they consist of the one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But here it's saying with crystal clarity that the one that walked on the earth for 33 years was none other than God the Creator. Okay, let's go back. And let's look at where it's going. Who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, that word could be translated servant, by looking like other men and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, pause there and let's go back through those verses just a little bit. When it says he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, it is the idea that all the glory, all the honor, all the authority, all the comfort that he had in the fourth dimension for who knows how many eons back, he laid all that aside to take on human form, come to this earth, took on the form of a human, the form of a servant. He was an intentional servant. We'll see that later. And so that's what it's talking about, that he took his almighty power and instead of using it to cause everyone and everything to serve him, he used his almighty power to serve everyone and everything because he's love governed. And so that's what it's talking about there where it's talking about how he did not grasp his equality with God but emptied himself. It doesn't mean that Jesus, even when he was on earth, was not truly God. He was always truly God, but he was also equally truly 100% human. That's a little hard for us to understand, but that's clearly what scriptures teach. And then it says that he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. So there was a sacrificial component. So we see a servant component and a sacrificial component in this attitude of Jesus. Verse 9 goes on to say this. As a result of his servanthood and sacrifice, as a result, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus came to reveal the Father. He showed what exactly God was like. Now we know. There's no more mystery. Everything that God can express about himself to us, it's been expressed in Jesus, particularly in his sacrificial death and resurrection. That passage right there, I've heard a lot of Christians and preachers through the years talk about, you know, every knee shall bow. And they always make it sound like it's, it's force. It's like Jesus is now unleashing his almighty power and every scoundrel on the planet and every devil and every demon is now by, by force being caused to kneel down. That is not... That is not what that's teaching. It's talking about a realization that comes over the universe that this almighty God who has expressed such sacrificial love, he is worthy of the utmost adoration because he's different. He's different than any other being in the universe. No other being has displayed this kind of self-restraint and this kind of love. And so the knees are bowed out of adoration and awe, not out of force and, and uh, fear. All right. So how do we... 
How do we assess our own attitude? So we see the ideal attitude in Jesus, but the problem that I have, the problem that you have, that we have as human beings, is it's really, really hard for me and you to get a clear picture of what kind of attitude dominates us. We, we have an idea, and usually our ideas are the attitude that we would like to have as opposed to the attitude that we do have. And so it's really difficult. How many of you know that there are people outside of us that if we were to ask them, what kind of attitude do, do we have? How many of you know that those people outside of us would probably be able to give a quick description? How many agree with that? All right. Now I'm going to ask you a second question that will require some courage. How many of you here suspect, you suspect, that if you were to ask someone that really knows you, Someone that's fair, someone that's objective, someone that's not trying to be hurtful or doesn't, they're not trying to drive an agenda, but someone that does know us, how many of you would suspect, remember what I said now, this is going to take some courage, how many of you would suspect that they would say to us, you really need an attitude adjustment, you need to work on your attitude, how many of us suspect we would hear that about ourselves. Can I see your hands? How about that? Yeah, me too. And it does take courage. Now, is it the person sitting right next to you that needs the attitude adjustment? <laughs> no. You don't need that much courage. <laughs> so how do, we, how do we assess? Okay, obviously, if we are humble and we have somebody that we trust, a safe person, a godly person, we can go to them for help. But there's other means that we can get some assessment, a diagnostic of our actual attitude. Uh, these are not, you know, real deep. This is pretty obvious. Let me just share a verse or two with you. In Psalm 119, verse 142, it speaks of God. It says, your righteousness is righteous. How long? forever and your law is truth when we go to God when we see the standards of righteousness when we see the righteous characteristics in him and in his word when we see his truth it can be used for us like a mirror like a diagnostic because his righteousness it's right forever it's the only way that life can work and the universe to truly exist forever in harmony and with everybody having the maximum quality of life and so we can go to God's word there's another verse from the book of Romans, chapter 7. And it says this. I would never have known what sin is if it were not for what? The law. In other words, it was not until God says that's something called sin. And by the way, when God calls something sin, it's not like he arbitrarily made some rules up. It is the designer who loves us intensely saying, this will always wreck you. This is always bad for you. This is not something that's fitting to your design. I would have never known what sin is if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known that desiring something that belongs to my neighbor is sin if the law had not said you are not to covet or desire something that's not yours. So we can go to God's word again, go to his law, and try to get a picture of our attitude in comparison to it. But that still makes it difficult because I don't always, and you don't always have a, even a beginning assessment of what our attitude is. And that brings us to this next scripture. Psalm 139 verse 23. This is, this is a 
passage that gives us uh, a principle that we can use a lot of, uh, throughout a lot of our, our walk with God. And it's a prayer. It says, search me thoroughly, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any wicked or hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So this is just a simple prayer saying, God, I don't know myself. I, I can deceive myself. I, I'm, I'm going to probably tend to see myself better than I am, but you know me, and I welcome your scrutiny. I welcome you to search me so that I can see what you see, because I know you love me. You're only going to bring to the surface for me to see that which needs correction for my own good and the good of those that have to interact with me. So here's beginning help on how we can assess the kind of attitude that's dominating our own life. There's a guy named David Green, and he's um, rather well-known because he owns Hobby Lobby. How many have ever heard of Hobby Lobby? It's just a little business, they, about $7 billion <laughs> worth. And um, actually, David Green's son, if you've been to that Museum of the Bible in downtown D.C., how many have been to that museum downtown, the Museum of the Bible? How many knew that there was a museum of the Bible downtown? Because it just opened up this year. It's new. Well, anyway, um, David Green's son put up most of the money for that magnificent structure. I, I mean, it's probably hundreds of millions of dollars. Anyway, David Green wrote a book, and the book is called Giving It All Away. And he practices what he preaches. This guy gives over half of his income away to the work of God each year. But anyway, in the book, he says most people's attitude toward life is kind of like playing Monopoly. It's like, you know, you, you've got to accumulate. You have to surround yourself with things. You have to keep making sure that you're getting all that you can and, and amassing everything that you want. You know, and the winner of the game is the one that's amassed the most stuff. That's the goal. That's the attitude for life. But David Green says just the opposite is the correct attitude for living. And he says it this way. He says, no, life is more like Uno or Crazy Eights, where the point is to run out of cards first. You want to deploy every card you have, knowing that each card left in your hand at the end counts against you. Don't get stuck at the time of your funeral with leftover cards. Now, David Green is, is a devoted Christ follower. In fact, his, his family has got a history of preachers in it and all that sort of thing. What is he saying? He's saying this, that this life is divine entrustment. God entrusts you and I with some time, with some talents, with some learnings, with some spiritual gifts if we're Christians, with some financial power, some money. And he wants us to use these things wisely so that our souls will develop to become Christ-like. That will only happen if we are responsible and use these things the way that God intended us to use those. And so ultimately there will be an accountability, but the accountability is just to show what is and have these things been used wisely for our development. So our, I hope your attitude on life is not <laughs> to make sure at your funeral you die with plenty, but like David Green is saying, make sure you leave it all on the field. You know, now is the time to give. Now is the time to serve. Now is the time to sacrifice for God and others in the kingdom. Now is the time to leave it all. Don't let there be anything left behind because that's not going to be the attitude that you'll be feeling very well about at life's end. 
Now, I tried to figure out how I could simplify this attitude that we see in Christ. And so this is my attempt to just make this a little more clear for you and a little more simple. The attitude that Jesus reveals in the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his attitude is what I call a realistic attitude. It's a realistic, redemptive attitude. By realistic, I mean Jesus is not, you know, walking around with flowers in his hand like some glazed-faced guru saying, oh, everything is going to be all right all the time. Um, Jesus didn't gather the political leaders of the world all together and say, okay, guys, we got to create a government to make sure everybody's needs are taken care of. He didn't do that. He could have. He didn't. No, Jesus was very negative, very, very pessimistic about human beings left to ourselves apart from our creator. He really said out and out that we will ultimately destroy ourselves through sin and society and that the only hope that we have is the intervention of the creator again himself. But yet he was very optimistic when it came to individuals. He really stated it kind of plainly that God loves everybody and welcomes everybody back into his family and that anyone that's willing to return to him in trust, anyone that's willing to trust in Christ our creator and become his follower, God was very optimistic for that person. First of all, he, he promises them absolute forgiveness of all their sins and the free gift of everlasting life. But then he also promises that they will be transformed to his very image. So he's very optimistic, but he's very realistic. Evil is real, and evil is not all going to end well. And he had no thoughts that you could bring together all the governments and all the philosophies of the world and, you know, make it a better place and bring in a golden era. He did not believe anything like that. He had a realistic viewpoint, but it was redemptive. He knew some people, individuals, can be reached and changed. He knew not everyone can. Now, the second thing we noticed from that passage we read about how it says that he didn't grasp staying in the form, you know, of God with all his glory, but he emptied himself and became a servant and humbled himself to the death on the cross, is intentional servanthood. Jesus' entire life was one where he looked around and everywhere that he could bless somebody, everywhere that he could draw somebody closer to God, everywhere that he could reveal more truth about God to somebody through helping them, serving them, that's what he did. He just went through life looking for opportunities to serve, to bless, to give. That's the attitude that Philippians is urging upon we Christ followers. It's saying go through life asking who can you serve? How can you help? What can I do? How can I bless you? What about this situation? You know, how can I improve it? That's the attitude that it's advocating as opposed to what am I going to get out of it? And what are you going to do for me? And how's this going to help me? You know, that, that's not the attitude that we see in Christ. Intentional servanthood. And it's a good thing to pause and ask yourself, is that the way you and I function now? Do we go into our environments, our spheres of influence saying, how can I serve? How can I bless? How can I give? How can I improve something? How can I move somebody maybe toward God? How can I give them a glimpse of his heart by my own servanthood? The second thing we see in Jesus is intelligent sacrifice in his attitude. And by intelligent sacrifice, I mean that some sacrifices that people make are not intelligent. 
Uh, we see this all the time. We see people sacrificing their souls to reach some kind of a goal. It might be a career goal. It might be for fame. It might be for money. It might be all sorts of things that people will sacrifice, but they're not intelligent sacrifices because ultimately it doesn't help them in an enduring fashion, nor does it help anybody that's close to them. But Jesus' sacrifice was intelligent. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 12 that kind of expands on this idea of intelligent sacrifice. It says, we, and this is talking about Christ followers here, we look away from the natural realm and we fasten our gaze onto who? Jesus, who birthed faith within us. In other words, it was as God was revealed in Jesus as sacrificially loving, particularly on the cross, and then the power that he rose from the grave with, that gave us confidence again in God. It delivered us from fear of God's almighty power, and we knew that God's arms were open wide in mercy. So Jesus created trust within us again for God. He birthed faith or trust within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection or maturity. His example is this, and it goes on. Because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you, you, if you're a Christian, you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the throne of power and control. But it's saying that Jesus' sacrifice was intelligent. He knew that if he would reveal the depths of God's sacrificial love by allowing himself to undergo the cross in death, he knew that would reach into certain human hearts and draw them back to God. He knew it. His sacrifice was intelligent. He knew it was going to have positive results, redeeming results on some. And this would be a great place to pause and to say, how has the revelation of God in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross affected each of us? Has it won our trust? Has Jesus conquered your fear and your distrust of God? Have you returned to him in trust and you are now following him fully and freely and forever? Because that's what his sacrifice was meant to accomplish. So, this gives us a better picture of having the attitude of Jesus. It's one of intentional servanthood and intelligent sacrifice, and we're urged to do the same. We can make intelligent sacrifices too when we sacrifice for the kingdom of God, when we sacrifice for those that we are responsible to love and care for, when we sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ, when we sacrifice to develop ourselves spiritually, we have to sacrifice some time uh, in other areas. And so these are intelligent sacrifices that we can make a Jesus model. So maybe, maybe we're sitting here and we're suspicious that we may need some work with our attitude. We, we, we may need at least to tighten some things up or, or maybe adjust some things thoroughly. So why, I mean, how do we go about that? How, where do we start? And why is having meaning such an important component of that? There's a guy named William Brightheart and he's the chairman at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And he specializes in the end-of-life care for terminally ill cancer patients. Much of his career, Breitbart has been surrounded by suffering people who just want to die. If death means non-existence, Breitbart's patients reasoned, then what meaning could life possibly have? 
And if life has no meaning, there's no point of suffering through cancer. Breitbart knew he could treat depression with drugs or therapy, but he was stumped when it came to treating meaninglessness. And he goes on to say this. What I suddenly discovered, Breitbart explained, was the importance of meaning, the search for meaning, the need to create meaning, the ability to experience meaning was a basic motivating force of human behavior. We're not taught this stuff, he says, at medical school. And so a major component of an attitude adjustment and an attitude that's like Christ was Jesus lived a life of purpose and meaning and we are called to live the same kind of life and that motivates and empowers us to do the work that's necessary if an attitude change is something that would be wise now there's a verse that we've looked at in many other times in messages that that it's God's given change process it's his purposeful methodology for you and I to cooperate with him to grow and develop and change it's from the New Testament book of Ephesians it says you were taught with regard to your former way of life that's our life before we put our trust in Christ and became his follower to put off your old self that's the old person we were before becoming a follower of Christ to put off that old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the, in the what? Attitude. attitude. In the attitude of your mind, the bent of your mind, the, the outlook, the color, the perspective of your mind. It goes on. And to put on the new self, and the new self is created to be like who? God. God. Now, let this soak in. The new you, you're going to always be your, your own unique, beautiful person, but the version of you that was always meant to be is a God-like, a Christ-like you. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So when it comes to attitude, it's the same thing. We probably have to put off our old attitude and now put on this new attitude of Jesus, this one of intentional servanthood and intelligent sacrifice. It's, it's a process. It's not going to happen automatically. It's not going to happen overnight. In the book of Colossians in the New Testament, we have a little more help. It says, set your mind. And keep it focused habitually on the things above, fourth dimensional things, the heavenly things, not on things that are on the earth, which have only, what? Temporal value. They're not going to last. It's saying you've got to understand that the world to come is the world that Jesus, by his life, gave us an example of. It's the world that we should be focused on. It's where we're headed if we are his followers in particular. And one last one that just gives us very practical help changing our mind and our thoughts and by that changing our attitude now the same book of philippians chapter 4 verse 8 it says so keep your thoughts continually fixed on all that is authentic and real all that is honorable and admirable all that is beautiful and respectful pure and holy merciful and kind it goes on and fasten your thoughts on every glorious work of god Praising him always. It's by changing our minds and changing what we choose to think on. You have to hear what I'm saying. What we choose to think on. Some of us, our attitudes have become less than what God would have them to be because we've either knowingly or unknowingly focused our thought too much on things that are, that are not according to our design. So all those things, if you notice, they're, they're all righteous and beautiful and positive and we can change our attitude by rechanging our thoughts well 
Let me close with a story that I've shared once before, but I think it gives us a good uh, summation of where I'm trying to, you know, share with you about attitude. There's a pastor named Bruce MacGyver, and some years back, he had to have open-heart surgery. You know, he had a number of blockages in his heart. And he was having a doctor named Dudley Johnson do the surgery. And so, just prior to the next day when he was going to go in surgery, Dr. Johnson came into his room, and... Uh, Bruce MacGyver, he asked him, he says, so, doc, can you fix my heart? And uh, this Dr. Dudley Johnson was known to be a man of kind of short, terse answers. And he simply said, sure. And he turned around and he walked away. And that was the end of that. Well, he did the surgery, 12 hours of it, actually, and it was successful. And so uh, after he came out of, you know, from under anesthesia and so forth, Bruce MacGyver, that pastor, he asked Dr. Johnson this question. He says, well, now that you've worked on me uh, and you've unblocked my arteries, how much blood supply do I now have? I guess he was kind of excited about, you know, the new potential. And Dr. Johnson's answer was once again kind of short and to the point. His answer, how much blood do you, will you have? How much blood supply? All you'll ever need, he answered, and he turned around and he walked away once again. <laughs> Well, finally, Bruce MacGyver was dismissed from the hospital, but just prior to his being dismissed, Bruce MacGyver's wife asked Dr. Johnson this question. She said, what about my husband's future quality of life? <laughs> and Dr. Johnson answered this to her. He said, I fixed his heart. The quality of his life is up to him. And he walked away. <laughs> now, what he said was kind of profound and true. The quality of my life, the quality of your life, because of God's graciousness, it's up to you. It's up to me. Whether my life has no beneficial impact on anyone else or on myself, that's my deal. That's my responsibility. God has done everything he can to help me change my mind, change my life, change my attitude. But I'm going to be the one that determines quality of my life. God waits for me to respond to him in a way that he can then put my life together the way that it was designed to be put together. So let's just ask a couple questions in closing. Um, what's the quality of your life like? Now you might be thinking, well, Randy, you don't know my circumstances. Well, but, but, but aside from circumstances, the guy that wrote that information that we were reading in the book of Philippians, he was in jail, and he didn't know if he was going to be executed or not. And all through the book, he talks about the joy that he had. And so the quality of my life, because of God's revelation of his love and his gift of eternal life, the quality of my life, it's, it's my choice. So what's the quality of your life like, and are you okay with it? Question number one, if not, what are you going to do about it? Question number two or three, depending on how you look at it. Has God perhaps brought you here today because you're his loving child and he's saying, come on, come on, it's time. Don't do this to yourself anymore. Don't do this to the people around you anymore. It's time. You're all grown up. It's time to change your attitude. And I'm here 
and I'll help you, and God's people are here, and they'll help you, but it's time. It's time to own this. It's time to change your attitude. If God is lovingly nudging some of us here today like that, don't miss this moment. When your heart is soft and your mind is clear, don't miss this moment because you can change your mind now and start a process to change your attitude and change the quality of your life, both impact on you and impact on everybody that you'll ever meet. So let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, you know us, and you know how prone we are to hear truth, to know you're speaking to us, to know you're tugging on our hearts, and then to walk out and get caught up in life's busyness and forget it all. Please, help us to take this truth uh, into the deepest part of our hearts and work it out into our life until a new attitude that honors and resembles you, Lord Jesus, is present. We ask all this in your name. Amen.